Oh, yeah. So, welcome to the eighth, the eighth Phuket retreat. For three years, we had two in a row. Last year, one. This year, one. Next year, one. Uh, I know I'm personally delighted to be back. I had a uh, lovely lunch with Klaus Hebben, who has created, this is your seeing his imagination uh, in this whole facility of Tanyapura. <coughs> a work of love. Um, it's really quite, as you can see, quite a splendid, as I, a splendid, almost seemed like a community, almost like a city. <coughs> when I had lunch with him today, I kind of got, uh, I, uh, I kidded him a little bit. It's more, he said, this is like Klausstadt, you know. <laughs> Really feel is you look at it, it's like whoa. In any case, it's very, very good to be back. It's really one of the most conducive environments for retreat that I've ever been in, where we have such a lovely staff and very good food every single day and air conditioning in all the rooms. If hot and humid isn't exactly your cup of tea, then you can have it as cold and dry as you like. Uh, so welcome here. Um, I'm already very inspired by the material that I'll be sharing with you. I uh, simply might do my best to convey it with accuracy and with clarity. Um, it'll be my great privilege to do so. And as I was meditating this afternoon, uh, it occurred to me I th thought I would add another component uh, to the intended subject matter. Uh, as you all know, and you came here, uh, we're going to be focusing on the very heart of this book right here, Natural Liberation, a marvelous book consisting of teachings from Padmasambhava, revealed in the 14th century by Kamalingba, one of the great treasure revealers. And we'll be taking really the heart of the text, that is the first 90 pages or so, something like that, consist of a very detailed and I think very inspiring, wonderful presentation of the common and uncommon preliminaries. Uh, and so I've invited all of you, as I think you know, to purchase this book already, to have studied, reflected upon, meditated on the preliminary practices. I know many of you have been practicing for years, and so you already have a lot of foundation, a lot of grounding there, establishing motivation, purification, and so forth. So I'm going to assume that one way or another, you've cultivated that, that ground you know, to prepare you so that you can really derive very deep benefit from these core teachings of Padmasambhava. Padmasambhava is set forth in this uh, text. It's called in Tibetan Jito Gomba Rangdul. Jito Gomba Rangdul. This self-liberation. Jito Gomba. Uh, in terms of, by way of the view of the Jito of peaceful and wrathful emanations and fundamentally it's emanation of your own mind stream. Um, but it's his teachings on the six bardos with this long introduction or preliminary prelude by actually, as I recall, it was a disciple of Kamalingba in the 14th century. And then Padmasambhava's own teachings on the six bardos begin right with shamatha, which is quite interesting because that's exactly what happens in, for example, the Vajra Essence, uh, this very large uh, teaching by Padmasambhava coming by way of Dujumlingba in the, in the 19th century. And sim similar thing, he refers to the preliminary practices and in fact, he refers to seven, and in fact, there are seven cited here, uh, the, the common and then the uncommon. Uh, that is, there's the, the common preliminaries and then the seven uncommon preliminaries. And so we see a lot of, a lot of how do you say, parallel there. And so to my mind, these, these, two, these two texts really are wonderfully complementary. And what occurred to me this afternoon 
as I was gazing once again over the, um, the setting forth of the presentation of the six bardos, it occurred to me that we'd really focus in, as I intended and as we advertised, on the first three out of six bardos. So the first of these six bardos is the, it's, it's called the Tibetan Kizit Zimbe Bardo, the transitional process of birth and becoming. So I'm, I'm calling that transitional process of living, because that's what it is. But it literally, it's birth and becoming, involving grasping. So here we are having been born and how we are in the moment, from moment to moment, day to day, in a process of becoming. That whole process is saturated, if your experience is anything like mine, with grasping. I want, I don't want, I hope, I fear, and so forth. And so there's one transitional process, the first of six. And then the second of these is the Milam Trube Bardo. It is the delusive bardo, the delusive transitional process of dreams, of dreaming, right? Uh, so we know this pertains to dream yoga. And then the, the third one is Gomba Sandengi Bardo, the transitional process of jhana, jhana or deep meditative stabilization involving meditation, of course. And so there are three others following that, but I think we'll have our hands full in eight weeks covering the first three of these, and they all pertain to how we can transform the circumstances of this life into a platform for achieving awakening, even in this very lifetime. Right? And so that's the nature of Padmasambhava's teachings on the six bardos. Uh, there is, there's those three, and then there's the, the transitional process of dying. Right? And then the transitional process of dhammata, which comes right after the dying, and then finally, there's the, um, the sipe bardo, the transitional process of becoming, which is the classic bardo, intermediate state, right? And so these are the six bardos, and Padmasambhava is presenting each of these six, each one of them individually, and he sets out how to do this, each one of these as being a platform, a field of possibility for achieving awakening. You know, each one, any one of them can, can be a your, your, your vehicle for awakening. So, of living, which focuses on shamatha and vipassana, right? Dream yoga. Some people are very, very gifted in that regard. That can turn out to be their very major practice. They may do most of the meditation while asleep. And you find those yogis tend to sleep a lot, whenever possible. They're taking a nap. They're just saying, well, I think I'm be I think I might be feel tired. Yes, definitely, you know? <laughs> and then they're even to the next session, you know? And so those are kind of hidden yogis because outside they look like they're just totally loafers. <clears throat> and then the, the transitional process of dhyana by way of meditation, of course, is the cutting through. I have been translating as breakthrough, but a bit more literal and a bit more common translation, which I'm, not, not, I'm going to now conform to, is cutting through. Tech means something hard, gnarly, difficult to penetrate, and chut means to cut. So it's cutting through your ordinary mind, cutting through the substrate consciousness to pristine awareness. Right. And that pristine, pristine awareness is one of original purity. Therefore, it's called cutting through to original purity. So we'll be looking into that. That will be really the culmination of the three bardos that we focus on during these eight weeks. Uh, on some other occasion, who knows, maybe we'll do the other, other three bardos, but I think, again, 
we'll have our hands full with these three. That'll keep us busy. And so it's going to be essentially shamatha and vipassana, the bardo of living this life, right? And then dream yoga, and then techu, the first of the two major phases of Dzogchen practice, uh, designed to, of course, realize, to identify, and dwell in the ongoing awareness of pristine awareness or primordial consciousness. So we reach right into the heart of the text, and we'll be drawing from that heart for these three, for these eight weeks. So as I mentioned, something occurred to me this, uh, this afternoon in meditation was to complement what I was fully intending and do fully intend to focus on the very heart of this text here, Natural Liberation, with Padmasambhava's teachings and a wonderfully clear, delightful commentary by my own Lama, Gyatra Ramuchi. Um, but in addition to that, I thought I would teach another text as well. And that is the Vajra Essence begins again with, after a brief introduction, goes to shamatha, vipassana, and then elaborate presentation of, of stage of generation, stage of completion. Then the techu, cutting through to original purity, and then finally the tutgel, the direct crossing over to spontaneous actualization, which is really kind of the full flowering, the final fruitional flowering of your, of your Dzogchen practice, right, to lead you to rainbow body realizing rainbow body in this lifetime. So he sets, a whole, sets forth the whole path. And then he even lays out different stages of, of manifesting rainbow body, you know, in the Vajra essence. Um, and then when it's all done, you say, well, I think you finished everything. You went from start to finish, showed how to achieve enlightenment in one lifetime. Uh, but then in this visionary experience, because all of these teachings are coming, stemming from, fundamentally stemming from Samadha Bhadra, manifesting in the form of Padmasambhava, specifically one of the eight manifestations, the lake-born Vajra, Soke Dorje, or Saroruha Vajra, Saroruha Vajra. Uh, and so that's this, it's this manifestation of Padmasambhava who's, who's appearing in this vision, this pure vision, to Jujumlingba, and then he's writing it down. And so after setting forth this whole path, then Padmasambhava is accosted by this circle of disciples in this vision. Uh, and they say, well, but what about if we don't come to the culmination of this path in this lifetime? What should we do then? And then Padmasambhava sets forth a very concise, and I think utterly brilliant, presentation of the six bardos. Right? Kind of like remedial work. In case you haven't achieved rainbow body yet, well, you know, this is backup. This is backup. You know? And so what I thought what we would do, I would do, share with you, these eight weeks is give you the oral transmission, the commentary to the first three of those bardos in the Vajra Essence. It's wonderfully complementary to what we find here in Natural Liberation. And then what we find here in the Natural Liberation in the presentation of those three bardos can really be seen like it's like a commentary, even though the Natural Liberation appeared in the 14th century and the Vajra Essence in the 19th century. When it comes to Dzogchen, frankly, it's timeless. Uh, I couldn't tell. By the teachings themselves, I would have no idea whatsoever that the, the teachings in natural liberation came in the 14th century versus the 16th, 18th, or 20th. It's just, it is really timeless. And likewise for the Vajra essence. There it is. It could, have, it could have appeared in the 14th or the 12th century. But what is distinctive about the Vajra essence, one of, one of the many distinctive uh, factors or qualities of it, is that, it, that the, the speaker there, Padmasambhava, says, that these are for disciples in the future, 
has a very clear future orientation. And more than any other text I've read, literally more than any other Buddhist text I've read, in terms of the classics, um, the Vajra Essence and, these, and the other four of the major treatises on Dzogchen that are transmitted, written down, or revealed by Dujum Lingba, to my mind, I mean, I know this is simply a, a subjective impression, but they have an incredibly contemporary quality to them. On the one hand, they're t totally classic, mainstream, representative of the entire Dzogchen tradition. There's nothing peculiar, iconoclastic, or anything like that about them. But just the way it's presented, I find just enormously fresh, inviting, inspiring, and contemporary. I really feel like here in 2014, Padmas is speaking right to me here. Uh, and so that, of course, is very inspiring. So we'll be going back and forth then uh, between the, the text in the Vajra Essence, his presentation of the first three of the six bardos. There's establishing that root. And so we'll start maybe tomorrow. Uh, and then, and then, for each, and so give first the let's say the presentation in the Vajra essence of the of the transitional process of living from the Vajra essence. Then go to the commentary, which isn't really a commentary, but much more elaborate presentation uh, in the natural liberation, and then proceed and like, likewise go on to the next two. Now, when it comes to the um, teachings in natural liberation on the transitional process of living. It goes right to shamatha and to vipassana. And I've taught shamatha so many times here, seven times here, and then week-long retreats all over the place, and translated so many books, written a number of books, that I feel that is pretty well covered. And our time here is really precious. It's really short. So I don't want to just be going over material already very, very familiar with, such that you might actually start waiting uh, like, when's he going to get on with it? You know, we're very familiar with this. When's he going to go beyond so we can really get to you know, what is distinctive, what is, which I haven't taught before. And I haven't taught this material before uh, from natural liberation, not in any detail anyway. And so we'll go through the shamatha section. Actually, we'll pick up, frankly, I will be picking up uh, at the culmination of his teachings on shamatha. So he gives other practices, methods, very good, of course, um, but we're just going to go directly to the shamatha without a sign. Because the other ones, he says, do this for one day, three days, and so forth. It's kind of like passing through town on a train. You know, do that for a day or so forth. And then even when it comes to the shamatha without a sign, without, yeah, shamatha without a sign, even there, he has this sequence. Many of you will be very familiar with this, a sequence of methods. He says, do this for one day. Then he shifts to another one. Do this for one day. Maybe he does that three times. And then he comes to the culmination of that sequence of methods within the context of shamatha without a sign, where he says, now that you've done all the warm-up, warm now release your mind into space. And then he doesn't say, do that for one day. He says, do that until your mind has settled in its natural state. Right. I think many of you know, have a very clear idea, at least conceptually, what that refers to, but in a phrase, it's where your mind, the mind that you identify with, your psyche, the one that arises independence upon the brain, where your memories, thoughts, personal history, and all of that are embedded, that one melts away and dissolves into the ground from which it arose, which is this substrate consciousness in the Theravada tradition called the Bhavanga. In the new translation schools, the Tibetan Buddhism, it's called the subtle continuum 
of mental consciousness. So I won't be addressing the, the earlier practices of shamatha that Padmasambhava explained. You're welcome to read it. You can certainly practice it. But I will be returning to a practice that I have taught, been teaching now for, uh, what is it, 37 years, and that's mindfulness of breathing. I will be returning to that one. Because in terms of the shamatha practice, the one that I will kind of encourage um, to emphasize for these eight weeks will be a combination plate. As I come to you as the, the Dharma chef, your Dharma nutritionist, a combination plate. And the combination plate, once again, I'm sure many of you are very, very familiar with, it's what I call by shorthand, or by a short, short label, balancing earth and sky. Balancing earth and sky. Uh, it's really a wonderfully balanced set of practices where the earth is referring to mindfulness of breathing and sky, the awareness of awareness, or you can just take the culminating phase of the shamatha without a sign, awareness of awareness, where you simply release your mind into space. Patmas and Baba's words, release your mind into space. Okay? Now, lo and behold, that practice, the culminating phase of shamatha without a sign, also crops up in the Vajra essence. But right towards the beginning, right towards the beginning, before he teaches, gives a full detailed account of shamatha in terms of the practice of taking the mind as the path, also known as settling the mind as natural state. But before he goes into that detailed presentation, which I've commented on, been published in the book Stilling the Mind, which is a commentary just on the shamatha section of the Vajra essence, before that, uh, as you'll know if you've read that text, uh, Padmasambhava gives his readers, his disciples, a kind of placement exam. Remember? A placement exam. And then there, there are individuals, and this is widely known through Buddhism, there are individuals who simply upon hearing teachings, they are so ripe that they hear the teachings and simultaneously gain realization. Okay? You find this in the Pali Canon the first recordings of the Buddhist teachings, and the most famous one of this, some of you know, Bahia. Remember? Bahia receiving that one paragraph of teachings from the Buddha. And by the time the teaching, this must have taken, what, three minutes, maybe less, by the time the Buddha was finished, Bahia was an arhat. He went from zero, talk about acceleration, zero to arhatship in three minutes. That is very fast. Said to be of all the disciples of the Buddha recorded in the Pali Canon, the one that was fastest. You know, one can really say simultaneous individual, because he heard the teachings, he became an arhat. Right? And so then we find the Zen tradition. Zen tradition is all about sudden awakening. Really not so cool, or not so, how do you say, not so emphasizing or embracing the notion of gradual enlightenment step by step by step by step, but just sudden breakthrough, sudden cutting through. To what? To Buddha nature, right? So have there been individuals throughout the course of Chan Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, who have just, they received teachings or a smack in the face with a sandal, and as in the case of, oh, who was it, Naropa, where they just have a sudden awakening. Yes, that's occurred many times in Chan and in Zen and in the Mahasiddha tradition of India. So the Tilopa, so the Saraha, Tilopa, Naropa, and, and then Marpa, Milarepa lineage. That one right there, famous for these cases where you, you kind of get primed, you get set up, and then some, something just enables you to cut through. So it's a sudden awakening. Right? 
And so there are individuals, very ripe individuals, who are these simultaneous individuals, people of superior faculties. They're very ripe. They're not superior just because they're intrinsically better. They're superior because they have a lot of momentum coming in, right, from past lives, this life, or what have you. And so they've done a lot to make themselves ripe, and then just a little, a little dusting of, or actually that's a wrong, probably a wrong metaphor, but just a light sprinkling of dharma, and then suddenly they're, you know, they're awake. But in the Vajra essence, Padmasambhava, having set forth the teachings, then he says, well, if you haven't already achieved enlightenment, after he gives a brief introduction about nature of mind, if you've not already achieved realization of Rigpa, then there's still hope you may, you may be a person of middling faculties or inferior faculties. And then to see, to have your placement exam, to see, well, are you a person of middling faculties or a person of inferior faculties? Then you have a little placement exam. And the placement exam is 21 days going off into solitude and pretty much day and night merging your mind with space. Merging your mind with space. It's taught in the, uh, in the Vajra Essence together with a couple of other simple practices. And then in another one, I think it's, um, I think it's the view of Samadabhadra. Then he just focused on this one practice, merging mind with space. There he says, do it for 20 days. And so it's a test, really. And it's a very benevolent test. And that is, if you do that, and just as much as you can continually, day and night, for 20, 21 days, just merge your mind with space. Then if you're a person of middling faculties, then you will realize Rikma during that time, become a Vijadhara, in which case you're like in now an advanced placement program. And then you just skip right over shamatha, because you've gotten that just by the by, and skip over vipassana, you got that by the by. You've realized rikpa already, so you can skip tekchu, and you go directly to the direct crossing over. So if you're a person of middling faculties, um, I have to say for you in this room, you've definitely come to the wrong place. Because <laughs> I don't think I have anything to teach you at all. You know, I should be sitting at your feet, learning from you. Um, but on the other hand, if you go into a retreat for three weeks, and you're doing your very best to merge your mind with space, and you don't realize Rikpa, but rather you find yourself getting a bit spaced out and restless and having a lot of thoughts and wandering and hopes and fears and so forth, and then three weeks has passed by, don't be discouraged, but you're not a person of middling faculties. Right? You're a person of inferior faculties, which means join the club. I've been, I've been a member of this group for a long, long time. Uh, and then you have, then it's for you to engage in a gradual practice. You go to the shamatha, you achieve shamatha. You move on to vipassana, you gain realization of emptiness. In fact, I love the way fr it, the phrasing comes in the Vajra essence. It says, first of all, the first phase for these inferior individuals that just need to take it step by step. Right? That is from kindergarten right down through. They don't just leap over. They don't have a direct crossing over to middle school or high school or you know graduate work. Um, but the first phase, you might recall, I think it's very, very meaningful, is taking, taking the mind as a path. Taking the mind as a path, where he also uses the phrase, nanrik lamdikerwa, taking appearances and awareness as a path. The appearances arising to the space of the mind and your awareness of them, and you're taking that as the path. And it's like a, it's like a village train that just goes from one little village to another, a local train, and that it, it takes your mind as the path, as the path means like as your vehicle. And your mind is your path or your vehicle to take you from where you are right now to the end of the line 
And the end of the line is where you no longer have a mind because it's dissolved into the substrate consciousness, the alaya vijnana. And so your mind was the path until the mind is extinguished and dissolved into the substrate consciousness or subtle continuum of mental consciousness. Same. And then he says the next path is to taking dharmata as the path. Dharmata, ultimate reality, suchness, is a synonym for emptiness, shunyata, synonym of dharmadhatu, the absolute space of phenomena, and now that becomes your path. You take that as the path to the realization of emptiness. And then after that, you take rikpa. And rikpa is your path, right? And so there's a kind of a gradual sequence that's set forth in the Vajra essence. Right? So we see once, it just, once again just a beautiful complementarity between these two texts. So we'll be focusing on these three. But in terms of the shamatha, uh, this, is, this practice of mindfulness of breathing is in fact taught in the Vajra essence and one or two other of these, of these revealed teachings of Dujumlingba, where, where Padmasambhava sets forth the taking the mind as the path, which you, any of you are welcome to practice during this eight weeks, but I really won't be going out of my way to teach it. I've taught it so many times, and I think you're, most of you, if not all of you, are very familiar with it already. But after he lays that out, and also backing up a little bit, after he's given a cautionary note for people living in degenerate times who have coarse minds and, and kind of have very high-strung or lungerangi uh, of the nature of vata, so very restless, hyper, very active, talking quickly and so forth. It's a constitutional type. He said, for those kind of people, if you follow practice of visualization, where you just try to create a mental image and lock onto it, which is a classic practice and a very good practice, whether a Buddha image in front of you or an orb of light at your heart or what have you, he said, well, the prognosis is not good. With that kind of psychophysiological constitution, if you try to put your mind into lockdown, really just holding onto a, a generated mental image, you may go comatose and crazy, right? And he's saying this in the 1860s in Tibet. So he's talking about high-strung nomads, right? They're probably like the mellowest person in the backwoods of Wyoming, as far as we're concerned. You know. um, but when I read that, I said, well, I think you've just described modernity. So it's not to say that these classic practices are no longer suitable, that we, have gro that we're, you know, we can't do them any... I'm not saying that at all. There are always people who are exceptions or who find themselves very suitable you know, for such practices. But generally speaking, it's a tough road to hoe in this modern world with the pace of life, the amount of information, the multitasking, I don't need to describe your lifestyle to you. And so in the midst of that, to try to, again, just lock onto a mental image and hold it, it's tough. And it does tend to be, get people really strung out. Now, not everybody, but what Dujum Lingba does recommend, and this happens repeatedly in his multiple his texts, his five texts, his five major treatises on Dzogchen, the practice that he emphasizes, above all, is taking the mind as a path. Right? Taking the mind as a path. But what's interesting as, is after he's laid that out and told about the kind of upheavals that arise, the challenges that arise on the way, how to deal with those, don't reify, don't reify, don't reify. And what I found very interesting is after he's finished all of that, he says, then, if you're still having problems, then let your mind ride let the, the rider of your mind ride the stallion of your breath. 
Back to mindfulness of breathing. Back to mindfulness of breathing. I thought that was very significant, very interesting. And so I'm going to be teaching mindfulness of breathing in a way I haven't taught before. Um, I had a very wonderful time in Scotland just recently. And after teaching quite intensively for three weeks, teaching my portion of the Cultivating Emotional Balance teacher training, then I had the, oh, one very juicy week where I just got to live in a kind of a cave cabin built into the side of a hill on this holy isle off the west coast of Scotland. And everybody just left me alone for one week. No email, no nothing. And I just got to meditate 12 hours a day. So nice. So. And so it was very beneficial. Um, and it occurred to me that um, various kind of ideas or stuff came to mind. But it occurred to me to take a slightly different approach to teaching mindfulness of breathing. It's a very minimalist approach. So like almost no interpretation at all. Just a literal reading of what the Buddha said when he set forth the practice of mindfulness of breathing, which he did, seems like countless times, uh, as narrated in the Pali Canon, but also in the Mahayana. Very interesting, even in the Mahayana also. In the Prajaparamita Sutras, he teaches mindfulness of breathing, and he teaches it in the same way, a minimalist way. And it's so simple, you wonder, why is there any instruction there at all? But he simply says, breathing in long, one knows I breathe in long. Breathing out, one knows I breathe out long. Okay, got it. And then breathing in short, one knows I breathe in short. Breathing out short, one knows I breathe in, breathe out short. Nothing complicated right there. And then breathing in, experiencing the whole body. Breathe, experiencing the whole body, I breathe in. Experiencing the whole body, I breathe out. Okay. And then finally, calming the composite or the system of the body, the whole system of the body I breathe in, calming the system of the body I breathe out. And that's all. That's what he says. That's it. For shamatha as a method, excuse me, mindfulness of breathing as a method for achieving shamatha and even proceeding beyond shamatha, even beyond access to the first jhana, to the second, third, and fourth jhana. He has nothing more to say. That's what he teaches. I just gave all of what he taught. And when I was off in a retreat there in Scotland, it kind of dawned on me, actually, I think that's enough that these interpretations from the Theravada, focusing on the sensation of the nostrils and the preliminary sign, the acquired sign, the counterpart sign, it's marvelous teaching. Marvelous teaching. I just say, namo, wonderful teaching. Asanga's teaching, where he gives detailed account of attending to the flow of prana, the energy flow, the flux, these fluctuating fields of energy throughout the body as you breathe in and out. It's a beautiful presentation. Oh, namo, I have nothing to criticize. It's beautiful. Uh, but the Buddhist teachings are beautiful too. And they're the simplest ones, right? as I just gave the entire teaching. So we'll be going back to that and seeing how could we just do what he said and keep it real simple. And the simplicity of it struck me as being very resonant with Dzogchen. Very resonant with, that's all. I'm not saying it's a Dzogchen interpretation, because it's not. You'll see, I'm just basically a literal reading of what he said. There's virtually no interpretation at all. But I will say this, as a preliminary to everything that goes on for this eight weeks, with our shamatha being kind of our baseline, our foundation, our fundamental cultivation of sanity for the vipassana, for the dream yoga, for the cutting through, right? 
you don't have a surface of a mind, then all the other ones kind of like evaporate, right, into restlessness and, dull, and dullness. But a core theme in the practice shamatha within the Dzogchen tradition, and this is set forth really clearly, most clearly, in the briefest of Padmasambhava, or Dujum Lingba's presentations of the path, in the sharp Vajra of Conscious Awareness Tantra. There, it's stunning for its brevity and depth. And in that, in that very short Tantra, again, taught by Padmasambhava, revealed to Dujim Lingba, who then wrote it down, and then gave his own brilliant commentary to it. Um, the entry into that practice. How you, how, when do you crack the door open? When are you beginning to do it correctly? It's very simple. It's when you distinguish between the stillness of your awareness and the movements of the mind. Between stillness and awareness. Between stillness and motion. Stillness and movement. When you can experientially, not just conceptually figure it out, but experientially taste it, know it, experience it, the unflickering candle flame. That'll be all with my mudra. It keeps on cropping up. That's my little, my, my little mudra of awareness still resting in its own place. It's like an unflickering candle flame, just straight up, straight up, right? When you can be aware of the distinction between that and the movements of the mind, okay, right, then, then, you can, then you can go. Okay, that's your entry. That's your access. Can you follow the rest of the practice? Well, if you can do that, then the door's open. If you can't do that, if every time a thought, a memory, an emotion, a desire comes up, every time there's a movement of the mind, if your awareness is similarly in motion, a, a desire comes up, and then, oh, I want that. And then a fear comes up, oh, I'm afraid of that. And a thought comes up, I'm thinking that. And a memory comes up, I'm remembering that. You know, when, if there's cognitive fusion of your awareness with the mental process, every single time that your awareness is always directed to the reference of the thought, the memory, the fantasy, the desire, the emotion, the intention. If there's fusion every single time, then you can't, you can't do the practice. You're, just, you're so like in a straitjacket of the mind. It's like trying to play baseball with it in a straitjacket or any sport. How do you play? Maybe soccer. <laughs> but any American sport, you need your hands. Right? You can't play it with a straitjacket, and you can't do shamatha. You can't, do the, you can't follow the Dzogchen path of shamatha, taking the mind as a path, shamatha without a sign. Those are two classic practices of shamatha within the Dzogchen and Mahamudra tradition. You can't do them. The door is closed, locked, and sealed if you can't distinguish between the stillness of your awareness and movements of mind. And then there are four types of mindfulness. I won't teach all of the four right now. They'll probably come up later. But then when have you really gotten stride? When are you really on the path now of shamatha? Not the path to enlightenment. That comes after you've achieved shamatha, actually. But when are you really you can say, I'm really on the path of shamatha. I am taking my mind as a path. I'm moving along the trajectories in the right direction. There are four types of mindfulness. And the first of these is called single-pointed mindfulness. Remember? Single-pointed mindfulness. And you can get to that if and only if you've cracked the door open by, by being able to distinguish between the stillness of your awareness and the movement of the mind. 
So what's this first type of mindfulness, single-pointed mindfulness? You can do, this, do the two simultaneously. You're simultaneously aware of the stillness of your awareness and the movements of the mind. And that's all kinds of movements. It's very subtle. It's not just a little bit of chit-chat coming up here and there, a little, a little slide, a little mental image, a little video clip in the mind. And, re- and while they're coming and going, letting awareness remain still. It's also the arising and the passing of desires, arising and passing of emotions, of intentions. And all the while, as your mind is in motion, coming and going, coming and going, coming and going, you're still. Still, discerning, vigilant, attentive, but still. Right? So that's the mood. That's the mood of shamatha within the Dzogchen tradition. That stillness of your awareness. That awareness holding its own ground. Rangsara Dimba. Awareness resting in its own place. Rangsara Nepa. Awareness resting in its own place, holding its own ground. Absolutely core to the practice of shamatha within the Dzogchen tradition. So, how might one practice mindfulness of breathing with the ambience of Dzogchen. Your awareness remains still like an unflickering candle flame as the breath is coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. So we'll try that. Try that. I think you can't be too far off of what the Buddha actually said because it's so literal. It's taking him so seriously. That in fact, you really actually don't need to specifically direct your attention to the sensations of the nostrils, the sensations of the rise and fall of the belly, the sensations of the flow of prana throughout the body. If you're simply sitting there quietly, your awareness resting in its own place, holding its own ground, you're going to be aware of the rhythm of your breath. You don't have to particularly look anywhere. It's kind of like around you. It's kind of, you're in the rhythm. You're in that field, right? You're in the field of the rhythm of your breath. You don't have to do something specific to look for it. It's kind of like it's the air you breathe. Right? The rhythm of your own presence in reality. So I've experimented with that. I like it. It's quite useful. So I'm happy to say very happy to say that um, this is kind of ba- as background. Uh, I've been working for some years now, I mean really like 15, but over the last couple of years more intensively on translating all of Dujum Lingwa's five great treatises on Dzogchen. They're all either 100% or mostly these revealed teachings that we see from Padmasambhava. And so I've translated all of them now. In addition to three commentaries, Dujum Lingba's own commentary to the Shatbhadra of Conscious Awareness Tantra, and then a short and then a longer commentary by Sarakando on Buddhahood without meditation. One of the commentaries is really the preliminaries for that practice, Buddhahood without meditation, and then the most definitive and detailed commentary by her of Dujum Lingba's text, Buddhahood without meditation. So those are eight texts, all translated with some very good help some from de- very dear friends of mine, without whom my, my efforts would not have borne good fruit. But I think, I think they're okay. 
and Wisdom Publications will be, will be publishing all three of them in a box set, three volumes, about a thousand pages of translation, about a year from now, if all goes well. But the work's almost finished. So if I, even if I die today, they'll still get out there. No worries. No worries. They'll be, they'll be okay. The baby is basically being born. And so very happy about that. Really, really happy. And Gertrude Mbuchi uh, kindly wrote a wonderful endorsement for it. Because he's the one that authorized me, encouraged me to do those translations. So that's really in the background here. Um, something quite wonderful indeed. So, anything more? A little bit on format. That's kind of the content. So we'll be lingering a little bit with mindfulness of breathing for a few days, but with a different ambience that will take you, I think, very smoothly into shamatha without a sign. Right? And then the culminating phase of that, of merging mind with space, We'll do that. And then, and then we'll go right directly from there into Vipassana, Padmasambhava's teachings on realizing emptiness. And from there to dream yoga. And from there to Tekchut, to realize Rikpa. So, it's, um, boy, it's a gourmet menu. I'll just try to cook it up well. But the ingredients with material that I'm dealing with is like, oi, oi, oi. How can you ruin that? You know, it's so it's almost like pre-cooked. I think I maybe don't even have to cook it. I just have to serve it. I think it's more likely. I, I don't have to cook it. I could mess it up if I try to cook it. Cook the books, you know, bad idea. But maybe I can just pass it on. In which case, the more invisible I am, the better. Padmasambhava teaches himself. Padmasambhava is a teacher. So that'll be the content for these eight weeks. Really, I'm so much looking forward to uh, be able to listen to the teachings, practice the teachings. And one reason I love coming back here for these eight-week retreats is, now I've done it seven times, I get to meditate about nine hours a day. And so for me, I really get to drink deeply while I'm sharing, passing on. So I don't do much when I'm here except for meditate and then teach and then meditate. You'll see pretty quickly, there's not much else to do here. Unless you really came out to, you know, build up your six-pack, your apps, and, you know, look like an <laughs> Olympic athlete. You came to the right place for that, but really, I'm not the best trainer for that. So I think that's pretty much it for content. Um, and then, um, format. Not a whole lot to be, needs to be said. I think you've already had a very fine introduction to the facility uh, from the staff here. I think you will love them as I do. A, a number of them are new but they have been homogeneously, in all the times I've been here, homogeneously gracious, helpful, warm, kindly, supportive in every possible way. And so what I think you will find, as I found every single time here, is just an ongoing flow of kindness and courtesy from them. And of course, when you receive that, then there's only one suitable response. And that is that we also, coming here to practice Dharma, and having no other reason to come here, if you were not want to work out in the sports center, fine, absolutely fine. But that's, of course, for the sake of your dharma, not dharma for the sake of you know, looking good. Um, but we're here for only one thing, to, to practice dharma. And so as we're receiving their just ongoing flow of kindness and courtesy, then, of course, it is only appropriate that we just show them courtesy as well. Just ongoing, never any lapses, always courtesy. They are so kindly and so warm-hearted and so sincerely uh, delighted with our being here. We've done this many times, and they're so happy when people come here just to practice Dharma. 
because many people here come here for the, you know, for the food, for the sports, and so forth. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But uh, they're very happy. They're, I think, pretty much all Buddhist. Uh, they're very happy then when people come here to practice their own dharma. And that's what we're doing here. And so, as this is our, really a, our foundation, you can call it ethics if you like. It's a very elegant term. I like the word courtesy. It's a simple term that we all understand. Even if we have different views of diff, you know, one system of ethics, another system of ethics, basic courtesy is very, very simple to understand. And so that would be my invitation, my request, which I'm quite sure will be fulfilled. But like every single day, every single moment, courtesy with all of those around us. And then, of course, courtesy amongst ourselves. Because we are here. Uh, it's a matter of balance. You know, I'm the balance walla, you know, the B. Allen Wallace. Um, and so the theme of balance is going to come up again and again. It always does. And so here's one element of balance. And that is you all have your own individual rooms, right? Individual rooms. Uh, we could have tw twice as many people here. These rooms can't be double. We could have 72 people here. And a lot of people did apply for this retreat, and I had to turn away a lot of qualified people. But um, it's just very clear to me that for these retreats, people should have their own individual rooms. So from on the one hand, we have 36, 38, 40 people or so uh, coming here, each of us for our own individual retreat. You have your own space. We'll be in silence for most of the time. You're coming here and set up your own schedule. Get up when you feel like it. You have the number of sessions that you find most appropriate, how long your sessions are. You decide. You know, the only thing that we ask of you is unless you're ill or something like that, that uh, there's a really good reason that you do come to all of our group sessions. That's so I make that commitment. I'll be here every morning, every afternoon, barring illness, in which case I'll let you know. Um, and so that's our, kind of our commitment. You know, that every morning, that there's no playing hooky. You know, that there's a commitment to the whole group, not just to me, but to the whole group. That this, is a, this, on the one hand, is, let's say, 36 people coming here, each for our own individual retreat. And we have our own individual space, and that's true. But it's not just that, of course. We're also here as 36 people, plus a few, as a group endeavor. As a group endeavor. We're all on the, on the good ship, natural liberation, venturing out over the ocean of samsara to reach the, other, the far shore as, as soon as possible. We're all crew members you know, on the same ship. And so having that sense that we really are all in this together, we're all here as spiritual friends, we're all here to support each other in practice, and above all, not to hinder anybody in practice. That's utterly crucial, that we're not a nuisance to anybody, right? And so there's the balance, that we're here individually for our own individual retreat, set up your own schedule. I am here in a very simple role, really simple and transparent. I'm coming here as a spiritual friend. That's how I think of myself. Um, I was just with a wonderful lama from Bhutan. Uh, we had him for two or three days in Santa Barbara just a couple of weeks ago. So delightful because I translated him for him earlier in spring at his home monastery in Bhutan. And he was just about to come on to give the, begin, begin the teachings. And he said, Alan, uh, what's your title? Are you Lama? How do, how do you, do you think, are you Lama Alan or Acharya Alan or Geshe Alan? What's your title? He said, I'm just Alan. <laughs> yeah, but what's your title? Well, some people call me Lama, but not, but not everybody. And some, I'm a, I have a PhD. <laughs> That's not a matter of opinion. You know, whatever you think of me, I'm still a Dr. Wallace. Okay, Dr. Wallace. 
Yes, I got my title. <laughs> but, but, but seriously, I mean, I'm coming here not as a doctor, but as a spiritual friend. And it means something very simple. Uh, my task here, my responsibility, my joy, and my privilege is to do everything I can to assist you in your spiritual practice as a friend. If you want to regard me as anything by some other label, that's your business. But what I just said is true. That that is what I should be doing. That's my commitment. Right? I'm here to serve you as well as I can in your spiritual practice. And you came here to, to learn about and engage in practices that I'm able to share with you, have been authorized to share. For both of these texts, I'll, I have authorized to give you the oral transmission and the commentary. You'll receive that. right? And so that's my commitment to you. And what I'd ask of you is that you come to the sessions. And if you can't, if your illness can crop up, you might have some tummy problems. We've had very good food here, very, very few health problems. But stuff can come up, getting a cold or what have you. Or maybe you need to go to, um, to I had to, had to go for a dental, a dental deal when I was in Scotland. One of my fillings broke, so I, I had to take off for an afternoon. So that kind of stuff happens, you know, life happens. There's a very good hospital here, Phuket Hospital. No, it's called Bangkok Hospital in Phuket. So if you do have any medical needs, they're very good, very, very good. Um, and so, what in terms of logistics, um, there it is, set your own schedule. Courtesy amongst ourselves at all times, you can expect it from me, I will do my absolute best to treat you always with courtesy. And that would be natural to be reciprocal, as with our staff here. Uh, and then in that spirit of courtesy, um, silence. Once again, it's a middle way. It's not rigid. It's not rigid like absolute, you know, do not open your mouth for eight weeks. It'd be silly. But also, uh, this is so choice. It is so choice to be in this environment for eight weeks where everything, everybody around us is just here, here to serve us. You know, they're cleaning our rooms. They prepare our food. They clean our dishes. Uh, any, any problem comes up, you know, go to the front desk and they really want to help. And so to be in an environment like this that is clean, that it's safe, the food is good, the air conditioning is good, and if you like rain, you've come to the right place. You know? uh, to be in such an environment like this, then it just makes sense. And many of us have traveled from long distance to get here to really take full advantage of the opportunity. You know? It's not so common to be in such a conducive environment with good spiritual friends, have such marvelous material to learn about and to practice. Really, I say that, you know, with deep reverence for what I'll be sharing with you, uh, that we simply take full advantage of it. This is a retreat, a time to really focus single-pointedly on our own spiritual practice. And so in that regard, uh, it would be a shame to squander the time, you know, to piss it away in ways that we'd look back at the end and say, oh, gosh, I wish I had spent the time better. I hope nobody leaves there with that attitude. Oh, I could have taken so much better time, advantage of the time. I hope nobody leaves with that, that we all, from day to day, just feel this is one, a wonderful opportunity here. Let's take full advantage of it, which means that we're practicing not only when we're on the cushion, when we're here collectively, when we're on the cushion in our own rooms, but really doing our very best to practice continually. You know? And the practice that we're engaging in, all of them, the shamatha without a sign, mindfulness of breathing, the vipassana, the dream yoga. There's daytime and nighttime dream yoga. And then the texture, the cutting through, all of these can be practiced formally when you're on the cushion and in between session. And you'll get the full flowering, the full richness of the practice if you're just making this a 24-7, you know, just 
ongoing flow. As Don Dumba said in the fa very famous phrase, <clears throat> give up all attachment to this life and let your mind become Dharma. You've heard it many times, probably. So there it is. Here we have an opportunity where we have virtually no demands on our time at all. You know. And so to take full advantage of that, this means that it, when it comes to silence, that's what I would strongly encourage, I would ask of you, is that your default mode, encourage you, your default mode, uh, is silence. Right? Unless there's some really good reason to speak. You're just resting with your speech in its natural state, which is that of effortless silence, like the lute on which the strings have been cut. Right? Now, especially within this compound, um, that is over there, the, the quad, the, the, uh, the rooms, the accommodations, uh, if we can really keep silent in the rooms. Unfortunately, due to just a, an error, not in architecture, but in the construction, uh, the marvelous insulation that Klaus had in mind, that he, did, that he asked for and so forth, which would have made the rooms virtually soundproof, was not implemented. And they discovered that only they were up. They'd have to rip down the whole building to put in the insulation, so it couldn't happen. So this means the sound insulation between from one room to the next is not very good, which means then even in your room, uh, if you can be really quiet, really, really quiet. Uh, I'll be the exception, because I have suites, so I have a room for meeting with people, then I have my own private space. Uh, so obviously for two hours a day, one hour in the morning, one in the afternoon, I'll be speaking in normal voice, and the people that come in for our weekly interviews or meetings, normal voice. So I just have to apologize to my next door neighbor. There's just two hours, be a bit noisy. If it's a bit disturbing, please come here and meditate. You know. But apart from my room, where there'd be two, hour, <coughs> two hours of <coughs> conversation every day, if you can be really very silent in your own rooms, because you know your neighbors will probably hear you. If you cough, they'll probably hear you. Um, <coughs> but then also, in that, just in the walkways and so forth, uh, the noise travels. Noise really goes right through the walls. <coughs> so if there's conversation in the walkway right in front of you, you'll, you'll hear it. Right? And so there's just no reason to be disturbing our neighbors with unnecessary speech. <coughs> this room here, I would encourage that we really, I would simply ask that this room here, apart from the time that we're here collectively for Dharma teaching for discussion, this is a place of silence. So some people really like meditating a bit more spacious place, uh, the, the, a little bit fresher, a bit lighter, and more open than your rooms. And so some people really like to come here for a couple of hours a day. Right? And so this place is a place, just silent place. Okay? Just a silent place. Uh, it might be possibly possible to use it for for yoga, but above all for meditation, but silent meditation. So this uh, silent, our meals will be in silence. I think tomorrow at least, I'll return to this topic, tomorrow at least we've just come here and some of you know each other, old friends that we've known for you know, seven years, ten years or longer. And so I don't want to ask you to go in silence immediately when you've not had any time to just kind of catch up on news and you know, refresh old friendships. So tomorrow, no silence. silence. Over there, yes, why not? But for meals, go ahead and talk to the meals, right? At least one day. And then I think what I'll probably do tomorrow evening, tomorrow afternoon, when we, when we gather, I'll probably put it to a vote, because I don't have any strong wish. But I'd like you to kind of socialize a bit, establish that balance. You are already here for a solitary retreat, but have a sense of getting to know people a little bit, and kind of moving into the realm that this is a collective retreat, a group retreat as well. So having at least one day, maybe two, 
you know, where you have, have opportunity to get to know each other a bit. Uh, that'll be good, but at least tomorrow. Meals, don't, I think, not in silence. Um, and then beyond that, as we then move into the silent phase, which will be the, really the main body of the retreat, when we come to the last couple of days, then I'll be again, invite you to talk and socialize again. During that period, and this is why I speak of a middle way when it comes to, to silence as well, that um, if on some occasion you feel uh, you and another person, maybe, maybe two people, really have something you'd really like to discuss, very meaningful, very relevant to your practice, it could be enriching, maybe you just like to, yeah, just talk about some aspect of practice. You know? I don't want to prevent you. It's not my role. I'm not here as a policeman. And so if you and another person decide, maybe by writing notes or just quiet, you know, a little bit of quiet, tiny bit of conversation, uh, would you like to go out for a walk and really let's talk about Dharma? You know, or something meaningful, something very relevant to this retreat. Then do it. It's your call. But what I would request is we have a nice walkways here. There's the, the roads, which are, if you keep your eyes open, they're quite safe. And then pl- plenty of walkways here in Tanyapura. I do all my, pretty much all my walking since last year in my walking within Tanyapura. Um, but go for a walk. And then you can talk in a normal voice and nobody's going to care. You won't be disturbing anyone. So when I'm out on my walking, because I'll, I'll try to do at least one walk every day, uh, when I'm out walking, if I see a couple of you uh, out walking, talking with each other, just know that there's no thought in my mind at all. I'm not saying, oh, you must be flaky, you're talking. That thought's not coming up. We're all responsible adults here. If you decide to go out for a walk and you're talking, I'm just going to assume this must be meaningful for you right now. I'm not going to give it a second thought. You know? So there's no policing, there's no judgment. You make the, you make the call. More meaningful to be in, in, in silence during that occasion or on occasion, more meaningful to have good conversation. All right? Because we are here as Dharma friends, not just one to everybody else, but hopefully all of us to each other. So that's for silence. Then we come to the, uh, the I was about to say days off, but I don't like that phrase. Uh, my day off when I have no teaching, teaching commitments and no interviews. So my day off, right, of formal teaching. I think we'll stick to Sunday. We've done it in the past, and I don't see any real good reason to change. Um, it is a day that we'll not be meeting collectively. It's a day, you can view it in different ways. One is that's a day when you have no interruption to your solitary retreat. And you can just go in and not come out, you know, and just have a very deep day of meditation. That's a choice. Uh, you may feel, for whatever reason, that you need to do some shopping, you want to go off, off uh, outside of Tanyapura, what have you. Whatever you call, again, nobody's going to be policing that. Nobody's going to be monitoring at all. It's your choice. We're all here as adults, came here to practice Dharma. What I would strongly encourage is if, whatever you do, if you spend maybe more time, maybe, you do, maybe you'll go off and do a bit more exercise on Sunday, or maybe you'll feel you need to go to the festival to do a bit of shopping, whatever it is, that you take that not as a day off, like you have six days of really practicing Dharma and then, and then day off. And then the next day, then back to really practicing Dharma again. Um, but rather you take that day as a day for full integration. Full integration. So whatever you've been practicing for the six days, say, all right, this is going to be a little sneak preview of what's going to happen on the last day of the retreat when you're coming out. Does that mean your retreat's over? Or is that the first day of your really integrating what you've been practicing and learning here with the rest of your life? You know, so it's full integration. 
the kind of the full flowering of the practice is when you're returning to a socially engaged way of life and you're bringing all of your dharma with you. And it continues to, to liberate, to transform your mind stream when you're not formally in retreat. So the little one days a week will be an opportunity. If you're likely to just go deeper into solitary retreat, fantastic, great. But if you decide to be coming out more, you know, maybe have a meal at the Divine, it's yummy food over there, or whatever, that it's in the spirit of integration and not just, I'm dharma out, and I need a break, you know. So there we are. Uh, what I'd like to do now, I think I'm just about finished with the kind of logistics, but what I'd like to do now is, um, we're all here to look after each other. I'm here to look after all of you as much as I can, uh, but we're also here need to look after each other, right? In the same spirit, just as Dharma friends, simply as Dharma friends, looking after, caring for, attending to, you remember that? Attending to, looking after, caring for, watching, watching over, and tending to, so that we're tending to each other. And so in this regard, we found it helpful in the past to create a buddy system, a buddy system, right? And so um, if you're here as, as spouse, that would be a natural one, or friends, or just anyone. But by tomorrow, by tomorrow afternoon, uh, please have found a buddy. Please find a buddy. And what this means is that you kind of just look after each other. So uh, if, for example, you come down with some tummy problems, it's not likely, but it could happen. And you feel, I, I can't make it to the afternoon session. I really need to rest. Or I need to go for a dental. Or I need to, you know, I need to go out for some good reason. Then tell your buddy before you don't show up. Please tell your buddy. And because if I, don't, if, some, if I suddenly don't see somebody here, then I might, I might worry. So, oh, is that person ill? Is that person being looked after? Is that person in the room? It's a big question mark, right? And so it's also an expression of courtesy that if you know you can't come for any reason, please tell your buddy and your buddy tell me. It's not policing at all. It's just that we're looking after each other. And if you can't come up, then you're just kind of, you're letting you know, I'm not, I'm not just gone. I'm gone for, for your own private reason. And there it is. So buddy system works out very well. And I think that's pretty close to it for the time being. I think so. Oh, yes. Um, since I don't believe I've met you, or if I have, it was too long ago, the person who is our retreat counselor, our retreat psychologist, please raise your hand. Your name again? Marissa. Marissa, thank you very much for your service. Um, it's one of my better decisions over the last seven years since the Shamata Project, uh, knowing that I have absolutely no training or experience as a therapist, a psychologist, psychiatrist, none of that. And there are issues, psychological issues, that may come up over the course of this eight weeks. Uh, insofar as I can be of service, of course, I'm here to do that. But Marissa, as a psychotherapist, has a training and experience that I don't have. If some, some, some issue comes up, a psychological issue, where you feel, I'd, I'd like to get you know, maybe some counseling from a, from a friend, a friend above all, a caring and compassionate person with professional training in this area, and Marissa is a person to call. Uh, if you can maybe, what, um, see how should we do this? If you can just put up a little note on the bulletin board of, um, let's see, yeah, you're just your name. And so if somebody in the near future would like to contact you, that they can leave a, just a note for you on the bulletin board, okay, Marissa. Um, and then we'll see how this plays out. Uh, my job is in a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but not quite is to give Marissa as little work as possible. 
that is, I'm here to help you balance your practice, right? And if upheavals come up, if challenges come up, to provide you with the Dharma teaching, to be able to, for you to deal with them, move through them, process them, whatever. Um, so that's my job. But again, it doesn't always work sometimes, or even if it does, often people like a second opinion from a second doctor. So Marissa pr provides another perspective. It's not my perspective. It's another perspective by a trained professional who's here, again, in the spirit of Dharma. She's not just coming in as a hired gun. She's here to, with the rest of us to practice Dharma. Uh, so Marissa's here, and, uh, and we'll see after a week or two whether it might be helpful for her to have a couple of hours per week where you're specifically available. But we'll kind of play that one by ear. Okay, but thank you, Marissa. It's a real service. Um, it's been useful on occasion, sometimes very useful. Um, I think always good and sometimes very useful uh, to have a person with your kind of training to deal with issues for which I'm not specifically trained. And then you and I can always work together. And it's good, you know, that we're transparent because we're working for the same purpose, just to help people here. Okay? Good. All right. And so before we close, it's almost 9 o'clock here, I just want to greet everybody who is listening by podcast. Um, so, Danny, if you can just edit out the part of introduction, and I think you'll, you'll just see obvious where to stop, and then maybe you can pick up right now uh, the part to, that does go on the podcast. But um, I must say, I've just been delighted over the last couple of years, especially, to be traveling all over the world and then find people say, oh, you've never met me, but I've been listening to the podcast, you know? I think, oh, there was some benefit there. And at no extra effort at all, you know, I'm here explicitly teaching 36 people. Uh, and I will tell you, you are the center of my attention. Uh, I'm here to be of service to you. Um, I'm meditating a lot, number one, because that's just what I love to do more than anything else. But it's also uh, the way that I found that I can be of best service. If I'm coming directly out of meditation to be with you, and then when I'm not with you, going right back into meditation, that just tends to bring another quality to the teaching. So that's just generally what I'm doing. Besides that, I can just tell you, there's no secrets here, um, a bit of email I have to keep, keep abreast with because I have activities around the world. I'll be doing a little bit of polishing of that th thousand pages of Dujum Lingba translations. And there's this wonderful Lama I mentioned. His name is Gang Tintuwa from Bhutan. And I just, we've just made a wonderful connection. He's now one of my Lamas. Uh, I'm just very impressed by him, a wonderful teacher, he's clear, he's articulate, he's grounded. He has nine years in meditation retreat himself, full-time retreat. He's also really knowledgeable. And so just in the, the couple of days he was in Santa Barbara, I learned so much from him. You know, even I, though I've been trained in Dzogchen for 24 years, like, wow, wow. I, just, I wasn't aware of my notes, you know, I wanted to take, take notes. So the long and the short of it is there's, uh, he's, he's the representative of a whole lineage of Dzogchen within the Tibetan tradition, or Bhutanese Tibetan tradition, of the Pemalingba, Pemalingba lineage. Uh, he's said to be the emanation, one of the three emanations of Pemalingba, primary lineage holder for his whole country, which means the world. Because uh, he's like, he, Pemalingba is like the patron saint. After Padmasambhava, he's like the patron saint. Atertun, the treasure revealer, uh, the prim principal one for all of Bhutan. And so there's a core text that he's been <coughs> teaching for some years now. And when, when I was with him uh, in Bhutan, I was translating for him and serving as an interpreter, just his concluding teachings, because he'd given earlier teachings that I had been not, not part of, and then I was invited in uh, to translate for the, for the conclusion. It was just on Tutgel, the direct crossing over primarily. And, but as I read through the translation, I commented, uh, 
I think there's room for improvement in this translation. And he said, good, do a new one. <laughs> I was like, you know, me and my big mouth. But it was, uh, but it was really a, a, very, a, a, very pl- a very joyful responsibility to take on. So that pretty much, now you know my life. I'll be doing that translation, fresh translation, a little bit each day, because I've already done a fair amount of it. Polishing the Dujum Lingba translations, doing what email I need to do, meditating, and having a wander- wandering mind. That also takes some time. So that's pretty much it. That's what I'll be doing. So thank you, Danny, for carrying the torch, keeping up our, our lineage from Daniel, uh, who started all this flowing. He was at the um, teaching for the Gantanduguru Mache just about two weeks ago with his mother. And it was just delightful seeing him and his mother again, two very, very sincere practitioners. So that's about all from me. It's about one minute till nine. Anything quickly before we wrap it up? All right. Well, very good. So I'll see you all at uh, 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. Have a good night's sleep. We'll get over jet lag pretty, swi- pretty swiftly, I hope. And, uh, and then, again, a meals mor- uh, morning, afternoon, evening meal tomorrow. Be free to socialize, get to know each other a bit more. Then we collectively, that is really primarily, you will make a decision tomorrow afternoon whether you've had enough of socializing, whether to really go for immersion into solitude, or maybe one more day. That'll be your call, whatever's best. Okay? Have a good night's sleep. <laughs> And welcome to everybody in podcast. Um, this one more point for the podcast people. I, if, you're, if you're following along, you'd really like to enter into the practice, I'd really strongly encourage you. Get a copy of Natural Liberation, because I will be following quite closely. And uh, very glad you can listen. Delighted to be able to share this with a broader audience around the world. So welcome to our community vicariously. And may you all have a good night's sleep. See you tomorrow morning.